Welcome everyone to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house counsel, outside counsel, and experts meet to discuss best practices and tips for the industry. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, commercial litigator at Womble Bond Dickinson. Uh, We're recording here today in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. We are here at the uh, global board meeting of the Association of Corporate Counsel. I'm excited to record here and particularly excited to have guests, both of whom are from Australia. Uh, Today joining us are Adrian Goss, who is General Counsel at Bauer Media Group, and Mike Madden, General Counsel and Company Secretary at Hind Timber. Adrian and Mike, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be here. Good. Um, I wanted to talk today a little bit about something that I know a lot of in-house counsel uh, sometimes struggle with, and that is career development in the company setting. You know, for folks that have come maybe from a law firm, there's kind of an established pattern of both career advancement, moving from, you know, associate, at least in the U.S., often to salary partner and then equity partner. And also in many large firms, at least, you've got a formal structure of training and you've got to achieve certain levels. And that's something you monitor. But I think it's often very different in the the in-house side. So what I hope we can talk about a little bit is some of the resources that might be available or approaches that you may be familiar with to help folks deal with that. Okay. Um, Adrian, let me start with you. I understand you spent 12 years at Bauer Media Group. That's a, that's a long time. Tell us a little bit about your work there and what the legal department is like at Bauer. Yeah, sure, sure. We're a small legal team. There's, uh, there's two of us, although we have a couple of retainer arrangements which sort of act like kind of external, internal lawyers. Uh, smallish team, we're a big print and digital publisher. We're part of a German-owned media company, which is principally radio, print, digital assets uh, throughout the UK. Uh, we recently sold our US business, but also uh, through continental Europe. Gotcha. Great. Now, that's an interesting, interesting background. How about you, Mike? Tell us, I know you've been at Hein only a, about a year or so. Tell us a little bit about your background and how, what led you to the current position. Um, so, this is, uh, Hein is my third GC role, um, and uh, I basically went into Hein to establish the legal department and the legal function. Um, that's becoming a bit of a niche area for me. This is my third company where I've been the first uh, GC, <laughs> first right. in-house, and, and to set up the legal department. So, um, so yeah, it, it's different. My background has always been in tech. Um, so now I've moved into manufacturing. So it is a little bit different. Fundamentally, though, the legal issues are the same. Um, and in addition to legal at Hein, I look after procurement and, and commercial as well. So I manage those functions. So I have a team of four uh, people, uh, of which I'm the only lawyer. I have a paralegal. And then I have two procurement specialists and a, and a contract manager. Gotcha. Uh, we, we double up in, in those roles. So. Yeah. Now, that's uh, interesting. And I know from our, our other podcasts and talking to, to GCs, I think there are a lot of folks out there that are maybe the first time the company's had a GC or they're, you know, they're there. And so they're doing everything for the first time. <laughs> There's no, there isn't really a, you know, a rule book where they say, oh, well, this, you know, this in-house department's been up and running for 50 years and this is how we do things. And yep. so that's why I think it's good to have some resources to find out what other people are are doing. What are you, you know, given that you've had to do that several times, Mike, do you have thoughts as we begin talking about career development or tips for things? Let's say someone else is in your position um, where they're trying to start a legal department or maybe sure. they're there, but they're hiring their first person. What are some things to think about? Um, well, it's really the type of person. Well, for me, the most important thing is culture fit. You have to have someone who fits into your culture and understands the business and can work with people. Um, too often you find that you have great lawyers who join companies, but they don't fit into the culture. 
And so the legal department then has this, I guess, challenge of establishing that trust with the business and the report and the business is confident that they come to you and they can get commercial decisions and practical decisions as opposed to purely legal, legally driven decisions. And I think that's what separates in-house lawyers from a lot of our um, external counsel counterparts because we've had to adapt and understand business decisions and the unintended consequences of legal decisions that, that we make. So, so there's that. But I have to say that when I first, my first GC role, uh, the ACC were actually quite helpful. Um, they sent me a, um, some resources around your first 100 days as, as general counsel. And so that was a very good guide for me to follow in terms of what are the key things I need to actually address in that first 100 days and how to demonstrate value fairly quickly uh, to make sure that the organisation really appreciated that, hey, we made the right decision, we've got the right person in the room, we've got the right skill set in the room, and this is what we, exactly what we need. Gotcha. That's helpful. Adrian, your experience about trying to you know, add to the legal department or find folks tips that you might provide? Yeah, look, I, I had a very different um, entry to the GC role. I took over from someone who was very respected within the business, uh, who'd run a great team for a number of years. And so it was a very easy transition for me into the GC role. And, and you know, we're talking about career development. My transition essentially came about because the part of the business that I worked for was sold out of a, a bigger group. And I think that happens you know, for, for a number of people. You know, how do you make that step up? There's only one GC role. It's right. not... It's not like a law firm, you know, as long as there's reasonable revenue associated, you know, there's always room for another partner as long as the revenue's growing. Yeah. And, but there's only ever one GC. And, and so I think you find a lot of very senior in-house lawyers who are you know, frustrated by the challenge of making that next step up. And so in a sense, I was lucky in that the timing for me was good. I was at the right point in my career, but we were sold out of the group, I stepped up to the GC role and the part of the business that had been sold out and, and you know, it was a very smooth transition. Yeah. I, I'm, I appreciate you mentioning that, you know, that sense of the of not having advancement because I do think that's a that is a challenge that a lot of lawyers get excited about going in house, maybe enjoy that work, but don't see you know, opportunities to advance. If the, you know, if the GC is only 40 years old or, you know, 50 years old, they're saying, am I going to be waiting for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years to take that role? How's this going to develop? Yeah. And, and I think for the, you know, the GCs managing a team, you know, that's, that's one of the biggest challenges. What do you do as your, you know, really good lawyers get more senior? And in a sense, you know, it's not the only place for them to go, but aside from leaving the company, the only place is to take your job. Right. And, uh, <laughs> you, you know, I think, some deal with that by trying to encourage those lawyers to go into the business, uh, and you know that can be a you know a path that, that some lawyers want to take. But a lot of a lot of in-house lawyers, that's not the path. You know they're, they're there because they want to be lawyers, and I think that can be challenging. Right. So if you let's say you co-host a podcast. And you just, you just have to sit and wait for the other person to like, get out of the way exactly. so that you can right. you, you take things into your own hands. So I guess uh, I'm coming for you, Adrian. Yeah, I'm coming for you. This is the second podcast where Brian's expressed some murderous intent. I'm a little worried about it. You know, he Not said, you know, saying, uh, accidents happen. Right, uh, right. Yes. No. <laughs> no, but I do. So are there opportunities to advance? provide advancement without actually becoming the general counsel? Are there other job titles or are people content to just get more money even if they don't get the title? How do you, how do you deal with that internally? Um, 
I think that's a really good question, and I guess it's it's uh, there's no right or wrong answer or easy answer to that. I, I think it's really understanding the individuals and what drives them. Personally, I enjoy being a lawyer immensely. Um, yes, I'm company secretary for for the company as well. Um, but I have to say, if I if I had to choose between the two, I'd, I'd choose the GC role any day over the company secretarial role, because I, I just enjoy that. But I also enjoy the business side of things as well, and really, it's understanding whether those senior group of lawyers that you have are also interested in doing other things or expanding their skill set and looking at whether you can facilitate that uh, for them. So there's a constant challenge uh, for them uh, to continually evolve as individuals and, and also as, as professionals as well. But yeah, depending on the type of company, it can be challenging and high and I'm lucky. You know, as I'm focusing more towards the, the procurement and commercial functions, I'm now considering actually bringing a, in a um, mid-range lawyer into my role to look after purely legal. And then hopefully from there they, they grow on and maybe one day they will have my job. And that's the ultimate succession planning. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always on planning having somebody who can replace me uh, the day I decide to leave or if I get hit by a bus. Um, but the business has that continuity. And it's just not, not about people, it's the systems as well. But yeah, it is, it is a constant challenge. But I have a lot of conversations with my people to understand what drives them. If they're bored or they, they want some other challenges, looking at how can I deploy them in other parts of the business. Um, to not only continue to provide value, but also give them some value as well. Gotcha. No, I think that's a good that's a good thought. Anything you'd like to add to that, Andrew? Yeah. Look, it's a real challenge. I I think that you know, it's often you'll have a subject matter expert who loves working in that area, and and that is you know continuing to do that quality work in that sort of subject matter area is is going to keep them happy for years. But you know, often that that won't be the case, and I think. You know, one thing that you need to get good at is is helping people move on when it's the right time, you know, and creating great opportunities for them and being really proud of the steps they then take. And in a sense, that's not a good thing for, for your team. Perhaps you lose a talented lawyer, but the alternative maybe is to have a disgruntled lawyer down the track. So, you know, maybe that's part of it. Yeah, and, and sorry, just on that point, I think it's a really interesting point. If I look at the NFL, and they always talk about the coaching tree. Um, mm -hmm. you know, Bill Parcells has a lot of coaches that followed his footsteps uh, once he actually mentored them. And I think part of the GC's role is to actually mentor his or her lawyers and to ensure that they've got a pathway. And if it's not necessarily with your organization, it's with another organization at some point in time. And so that's part of giving back to our profession um, in terms of that continuous mentoring. And, and when the time comes for that discussion to say, look, I think it's time for you to move on, it shouldn't be a surprise discussion and it shouldn't be a difficult conversation because that person is already on that transition to, hey, I want to be a GC and there's a, there's a role there and I'm going. And I think if there's one thing you can do for people is, is to uh, enable that and facilitate that success for them. If it's not with you, with someone else. And yeah, the, the, the downside is you lose a bit of knowledge and you lose that person. But the upside is you get to do it all over again with somebody else um, who wants that opportunity to work in-house and, and move through you know, the various levels. So. Interesting. I know in the U.S. there's a, a trend now where instead of general counsel, some companies are using the term chief legal officer or CLO. I, I admit, I, I see that sometimes and I'm not really clear whether that's higher or lower than the, than the GC. I, I know you're both in Australia. Is that a term that is used at all there? Do you have thoughts about terminology in terms of, and it comes up because we're talking about promotions and options. And, you know, I'm wondering about, is there ways to give somebody a title that 
feels yeah. like a promotion. It's still not necessarily the top guy. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, look, general counsel is by far and away the most common title for the most senior legal officer in the company. I, mm-hmm. I'm not aware of anyone who has the CLO title. I wouldn't say no one does, but I'm not aware of it's, anyone. Yeah, it's not as prevalent. I'm starting to see it um, with some companies, but some of the banks are moving towards that. And the chief legal officer all in that sense is effectively the, the most senior legal officer position in, the, in that organisation. Uh, but they look after risk, legal operations. So there's a number of hats that they wear. And so effectively what you find is you have a general counsel who literally deals with the legal issues and then the CLO deals with the board and also um, okay. various other business units. So I think they're starting to move towards that segregation, some of the, these bigger companies that need to enable that movement that we just spoke about before. Um, yeah. But it's not as prevalent as it is in the US. Um, that, that's certainly my experience as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. I can think of at least one company that seems to have multiple general counsel. So I don't, I don't quite know what that means, but right, right. maybe that's their solution. That's their solution yeah. to the success and yeah. challenges. Well, you're general counsel in Chicago and you're general counsel yeah. in LA. Something or whatever, like that. You know, that's yeah. interesting. Before you guys move off of moving in and out, I'm curious. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you both were uh, outside counsel at some point, right? Yeah, uh, yes. And then went in-house. Um, that's something we've talked about a little bit. I'm curious, is there your thoughts on that transition, but specifically to the conversation today about development, uh, are there things that you would recommend to outside counsel who are maybe thinking about transitioning in-house as far as development goes to yeah. better prepare themselves for that yeah. different I, role? I think that's a great question. And, and the conversation I've had on a number of occasions is with someone at that sort of second, third year level in a law firm looking to go in-house. And the advice I've always given them is stay a few years longer. You know, you're, you're, you're too junior to make the move. And I know it's not the only path to in-house, but it is the most common path via private practice. And I think the, the kind of training that law firms can give, that experience of being beaten up by a senior partner for a few years who really teaches you to be a good lawyer um, and, and being surrounded by lots of good lawyers, you know, is is so valuable at that point in your career. And I think you can't plan your career perfectly, but to me, you know, you really don't want to leave until about that kind of fifth year level when you've got some serious experience under your belt and as I say it's not the only way to do it but I think that that early training in a solid firm environment is really important. To, to share my perspective on that I, I agree so um, I'm very fortunate I've had a lot of good mentors uh, throughout my career and uh, around the, when I was five years post-admission experience um, one of the partners in um, I was in uh, litigation one of the partners said to me hey we've got an opportunity with Telstra Corporation Limited, and Telstra is, is the biggest uh, telecommunications and ICT provider in, in Australia. Uh, there was a common opportunity. He said, listen, I know you're in litigation, but I think you'd be a great sort of fit into that team. And I said, I'm going into the, the legal team. And he said, no, you're going to the commercial and contract management team. Oh, wow. And I sort of stepped <laughs> back and said, oh, I don't know about this. And he said, listen, uh, trust me, this, this will be great and you'll enjoy it. Uh, and so I did a secondment, which was originally supposed to be for, uh, for three months. Uh, that turned out to be 24 months in the end. Um, but I was very lucky in that I, I worked in the commercial management team. Uh, I had, again, some really good mentors uh, that I worked with. Uh, and predominantly, we sat with the sales team uh, who serviced some of the, the biggest sort of um, mining companies in the country, some of the biggest banks. 
And I think I picked up a, a lot of the business skill sets that I have today from having that mentoring and sitting within the, the sales group and going to meetings with customers and understanding what the pain points were and getting a, a sense of, as to how to piece a deal together. And then really understanding uh, you know, the process for uh, as an in-house lawyer, where you actually need to be involved. So in most organizations now, when there's an opportunity, my team is, is alerted to the fact that, hey, we are looking at doing business with these guys. So we get in there early, we get to look at the transaction pretty closely, manage the risk all the way through. If I get a con, if somebody comes up to me and says, oh, I need you to sign this contract or review it, and I say to them, what part of the process are we in? And they say, oh, we've, we've finished everything. I say, well, I don't need to review it because I can't help you, sorry. Mm. Uh, if everything's been negotiated out, I can't effectively allocate risk. So, uh, you know, so I agree with Adrian. I have four, five years post-admission, two years as, as a commercial manager. And in fact, that's where my first opportunity came along. We, one of Telstra's clients uh, actually reached out to me and said, would you be interested in uh, becoming our first uh, GC and also creating that legal function? Uh, and that, that's how I basically started in-house. Um, so, Did you, know, you find that experience also made you a, a better, before you went in-house, a better outside counsel as well? Well, interestingly enough, I never went back to... You never went back, back to practice uh, <laughs> outside counsel. Um, and, uh, and I think, yeah, I mean, that skill set was invaluable and just the way to approach uh, people. I guess one of the things that you don't necessarily always get an opportunity to, to sort of deal with as, as a more junior lawyer in a firm is that you don't tend to spend as much time with clients as the partners would do. And so this for me was you were talking directly with the client and the client was right there and the, the decisions you made today, you would see the consequences of that tomorrow. So, you know, it really did give you a <laughs> motivation to do it right, get it right the first time and really understand what the issues were and cut to the chase um, because in tech companies, things are moving by minutes, not by days, by minutes. And so decisions have to be made quickly. So. That's interesting. And I know, you know, succumbent is certainly, I think, often very valuable both for the firm that's providing the lawyer and for the client. And, and as you just demonstrated, for the, for the lawyer doing a succumbent. I wonder whether there are any comparable opportunities on the, for people that are working in-house, an opportunity to maybe not be seconded at another company, but be seconded to a business unit or do do something like that. Have you guys seen that? Are there, you know, are there are there those kind of opportunities to provide a similar learning atmosphere? Yeah, I've certainly heard of that, and particularly in the bigger companies, there's so much more scope for that. Or you know, perhaps there's a, a specific project that's going on, and you know, a lawyer seconded into that project, maybe to do a strictly legal role, but maybe to do a slightly broader role. Uh, but I think with smaller companies, that's that, that's more challenging. But but certainly I've heard of it in the big companies. Okay. I've certainly heard of uh, exchanges between, um, I'll go back to Telstra because that's mm -hmm. a, an example that I'm aware of. Um, Telstra and a, a bank in Australia, Westpac Banking Corporation, actually uh, swapped lawyers effectively when they had some of their lawyers seconded into, uh, Telstra seconded some lawyers into Westpac and Westpac seconded some lawyers into Telstra. And that was really about the lawyers who worked with each other on various transactions, um, had an understanding of how the, the relative businesses operated. And I think that was a really interesting idea. It probably did provide you know, a different perspective. Um, so there's certainly some scope to do that even outside the organization. But I tend to agree with Adrian. Um, if you've got a large enough company, you can second people. So you know, when I look at my matter management list, procurement is um, high up on that. So you know, do I look at a procurement lawyer or do I bring somebody on secondment? Um, but I could literally second my paralegal to procurement full time. And not have a comeback. So, yeah. so yeah, the, the, I, I think I've got opportunities in certain areas. Probably not to justify a full-time secondment, but yeah, but I can see the scope to to do that, and that'd be a really interesting way to to approach 
uh, some of the questions we've, you've asked before. Yeah. So we, we talked a little bit about advancement. I guess when I think of career development, the other thing that I think about is kind of the training, you know, personal improvement. And again, some law firms have a pretty defined program. In our litigation program, for example, we've got a list of six courses that you have to complete where, you know, t- taking depositions, uh, picking a jury, uh, you know, closing argument, dealing with expert witnesses. It's a fairly defined path that we say before you're eligible to be a partner in our firm, you've got to have this skill set. And some of those are taught by our own lawyers. Sometimes we use, you know, National Institute of Trial Lawyers or other programs um, to do some things. But uh, tell, tell me what your experience is in, in in-house, and I guess maybe get into some discussion of resources that might be available for a smaller legal department that wants to provide some opportunities for training and skills, you know, where they can get those. Yeah, yeah. My experience is that training has to be pretty self-directed. You know, for, certainly for the companies that I've worked for, almost all of the internal training is geared at the core business, which makes perfect sense. You know, we do a lot of training for our sales teams, for example. We don't do a lot of training for our tiny legal team. And it's just, it's not core to business. It doesn't, that wouldn't make sense. So Mm -hmm. having said that, I've found the companies that I work for to be very supportive in terms of self-directed training. So uh, I I, I did a master's while I was working in-house and that was funded um, in part by my employer at the time. You know, and and that's a, a good example, but that was a decision I made to get a further qualification and... A master's in what, I have to Well, ask it was a master of laws. Okay. Um, but it was, it focused on, I've always worked in media, it focused on IP media issues. Um, but, you know, I, I've never worked anywhere big enough to, to say have a formal training program for the legal team. But I assume if you're in, you know, if you're in one of the banks with hundreds of lawyers, you know, you can build some formality around that. You can build some internal training programs. Um ACC is obviously a great resource for self-directed training. You know, there's lots of opportunities that ACC offers to develop your skills as an in-house lawyer. But, yeah, to me, it's about making decisions perhaps about where you want to get to and getting the sort of qualifications that will help you get there or position you well if the opportunity comes up. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, it's uh, a lot of that is no no one's going to look after your self-development. Particularly on the legal side, I mean, HR will help you with, you know, your personal development in some areas, but not uh, as a professional, legal professional. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I sort of reflect year on year. I, I reflect on, okay, what sort of work have I been doing? Where is my company going? What sort of skill set um, or expertise do they think they require? Do I think they require, you know, over the next 12 to 24 months? Uh, am I really positioned to be able to provide that? And what level of expertise or knowledge do I need to have to? Be able to make some calls around. Yeah, this is the way we should go. We should get external counsel. And one of the things I do is, I, with with my staff, I sit down and we actually have a, a performance discussion and a performance development plan as well. So what skill sets do they need to improve on? Um, so yeah, so I think it needs to be self-directed. We are talking about some of the training. I understand that the ACC's actually got a certification program now. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Um, well, the certification plan, uh, or the program that, that, that's being run, um, was I think culminated from a number of inquiries to the ACC around well, what's best practice for in-house counsel, and really the ACC was seen as the preeminent sort of body that represents in-house counsel, and so you know the idea was that well we should have some ideas about what what is best standard uh, for practicing lawyers because I think depending on where 
you know, your practice law and the sort of education you've had. In places like Dubai, there's varying degrees as to you're a qualified lawyer, but your skill sets are quite varied. And so in some areas, like, like Dubai, the government has decided that, no, we actually want to maintain a standard, and you need to meet that standard to be able to practice law. Um, so the ACC went around designing a program based on the requirements of the, the Dubai government. And so the certification program uh, effectively uh, targets some key areas of practice uh, for those lawyers, um, which don't, aren't necessarily picked up as part of the, the, the local programming. Um, in Australia, I suppose it's a little bit different because we do have a um, we do have to fulfil some core skills um, to maintain our what we call our practice certificates or, or licences to practice, um, which involve practice management, ethics, and uh, I think it's general business. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, you know, so, okay. so we have that, and, that, and I suppose I wouldn't call that a standard. It's a requirement that you demonstrate that you've done something. Um, so you're not accredited. It just means that you requalify to to hold a licence to practice. And is that in Australia? Is that something you do every year, or do you have, or, or every number of years? Okay. So annually, uh, we have to maintain uh, or, and be able to demonstrate that we have completed ten units. Okay. Um, with addressing the so ethics is a is a uh, compulsory, as is professional skills and uh, practice management skills. Um, so the ten units equals uh, ten hours. So effectively, ten one hour CPDs or CLEs. Okay. To get to that point. All right. Interesting. Yeah. So here, uh, as you may know, as our listeners know, it's going to vary state to state because the licensing entities here are each individual state. But North Carolina, where I'm, it's 12 hours a year and you have to have a, an hour of ethics, an hour of technology, and then every third year, some substance abuse training. So that's <laughs> that's interesting. But it is, I know just in talking to some of the other uh, lawyers from around the world here, they're, they're very non-uniform, yeah. right? If different countries have different standards and some essentially have no standard yeah. for, for continuing education, which can be a challenge. Yeah. And look, I think most of those um, continuing education requirements in the various jurisdictions are geared at lawyers generally. Right. And, you know, part of what ACC is trying to do is something much more specific to the skills of in-house lawyers. Mm. And, and a lot of those aren't legal skills as such. They're, they're management skills, they're budgeting skills, um, they're project management skills. And I think that's where ACC adds a, another dimension to perhaps what you know, your local licence body requires of you each year. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I think the ethical questions in particular for in-house counsel uh, differ quite significantly different to um, someone, an external counsel. So for us, that's probably a, 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 an area of focus where no one ethical issue is the same and, and can uh, arise in a number of areas, whereas external counsel have the benefit of effectively saying to the client, well, you have a problem and, uh, and I'm happy to assist, but if you want to persist with that issue, well, then we can't act for you. In-house, you don't have that luxury. It's um, true. So it's either um, <laughs> they listen to you or you work on a transition and evacuation plan. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I, I know. I think that's a, a real problem here in the United States as well, where there is not that much continuing legal education that's really focused for an in-house mm-hmm. audience, other than some of the offerings from the ACC. A lot of them are general um, seminars, and they're going to be attended 80% by outside Council and so they're not going to be that relevant. Um, what uh, as we're talking about um, career development too? Are there particular skills that you think you know? If, if you were again, if we're talking to an in-house counsel that's just starting, or maybe has a couple lawyers but has no program, are there topics that you think would be important to 
you know, get that training on that you've, things that you've benefited from that you would say, you know, make sure you learn about A, B, and C? Yeah, look, I think, you know, one of the fundamental aspects of an in-house lawyer's role that, that really doesn't touch you at all in private practice is procurement. You know, you know, on one level, leaving aside the, the legal work we do ourselves, a big part of our job is procuring legal services. And lawyers, on the whole, don't have great procurement skills. And, That's true. You know, we've both worked with, uh, you know, sophisticated procurement teams, and, and they bring a different sort of toolbox. You know, they bring a different set of skills, a different methodology, different approach. And, you know, that's something that in-house lawyers you know, need to learn. Great, great point. And I think that's very true. Mm-hmm. I know our listeners may recall our podcast with Annalise where we were talking about procurement and you know, the interesting role between her procurement office, which actually handles a lot of the hiring and pricing of lawyers, and the in-house legal department that's going to make those ultimate selections. Yeah. And you're right. That's not something that you're going to get as outside counsel. Certainly, you're not going to hear the word procurement in law school, at least not in the United yeah, States, no, exactly. right? I mean, the whole idea, nah, that's, yeah. not, that's not us. And I know in some big companies, you don't have a choice, but I hate the idea of uh, <laughs> my procurement team or any procurement team procuring legal services. Mm-hmm. I think it's such a, a fundamentally different input to a business that uh, general procurement guys shouldn't touch that. I know they do, but uh, they shouldn't. It, it does raise that interesting question of, uh, you know, and I know earlier today, as part of the presentation, we, we talked about um, the ACC looking at potential certification for external counsel service providers and, and uh, you know, data security and integrity. Given that we are supposed to be independent uh, advisors to the company on the board, I think this is a really interesting topic in, in that I would not expect anybody else within the, the organization to handle procurement of legal services. That's absolutely up to me because ultimately my interaction with the board means that any sort of communication and so on must be subject to that legal professional privilege. And as such, I want them to be my advisors who are then ultimately advisors to, to the company. So yeah, I agree. And I mean, I tend to, um, tend to do all of that work within my team. Um, and I wouldn't let any other procurement team near my, <laughs> my, not my legal procurement. Yeah. Um, going back to, to uh, I suppose, um, topics or skills, I think listening is a, is a critical skill for um, in-house counsel. Um, because what you will have is, uh, generally, I find when you first start in-house, people aren't sure how to deal with you. They're not quite sure how to take it, particularly if they haven't had in-house counsel before. And so they're very cautious about what they're telling you. So you need to be able to listen and read between the lines and, and ask those probing questions and, and give people a sense of comfort that, hey, I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm on your team. So I need to know what the issue is, how bad it is, so I can help you solve the problem. And I think if you've got good listening skills, people will eventually feel more comfortable talking to you. Uh, and then you, you can pick up what the real issues are. Because let's face it, most people, uh, if they're lucky, they won't have to talk to a lawyer through their lifetime. Uh, and all of a sudden, they've got someone sitting in front of them saying, I'm going to look after this contract and I need to know this and this and this. They probably don't know what information they need to give you. So, you know, I think listening is a, a critical skill. No, I think that's great. No, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And again, not something you're going to see a course on in a normal law school or get in a normal program. Yeah, yeah. And I think the other side of that coin is is communicating to the business. You know, the way you communicate in a law firm to your clients is is quite different from the way you communicate in-house. And, you know, necessarily so. And often from a law firm, you are dealing with a general counsel, an internal lawyer, and what they want from you is a lot of detail and they want formality, not always, but, but often that's what they're after. But that, 
that detail, that formality, that's not the, the form in which it's going to go up the chain to management. Right. You know, that's a very different communication. And, you know, I'm not sure... I'm not sure how you learn that. I was lucky enough to have a couple of great mentors as in-house bosses uh, in my career, and I think I learnt it from them. Uh, how, how else do you pick up those skills? Partly it's just being in the trenches and under, you know, learning mm-hmm, what works and what doesn't work. And yeah. you, know, you, you think if you reduce something to a page, surely the CEO will read it. Yeah. But no, no it's, it's still <laughs> yeah. a page too long. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting because I, I think um, and, the, and for GCs there's always that divide between um, CEO on the board because how the board would like information presented to them is quite different to how the CEO would want the information presented. So I tend to go with a, a cookie cutter model that I sort of use and, and I find it works for me is that I most of the, the advice or, or papers that I write for them effectively talk about uh, context. What's the context of the issue that's being discussed or, or presented on? Purpose. What's the purpose of the paper? Why do you have to read this? Um, and then you give them the, the substance and then recommendations. And so, you know, in those recommendations, what they're looking for is give, give me some options. So sometimes the options are very simple. If you don't do it, you go to jail. If you, if you do do it, it's <laughs> you know, fantastic. Right. But, but generally, options. they're looking for some options. Um, you know, if you just come up with one answer, they'll say, well, have you really even considered all the other factors? So you really have to demonstrate uh, through that communication that, yeah, you've, you've spent some time thinking through the various business impacts and potentially the unintended consequences of, of the decisions or recommendations that you've made. I uh, truly really arm them with... Uh, with as much information as possible so that they can make the decision that they think best serves the business. Occasionally, I've been asked to, to make a call. Uh, I tend to shy away from, I will say, look, in my view, if, if I had to pick one of those recommendations, uh, if I was sitting in your shoes, that's the way I would play it. But I always have our CEO and, and the board of directors own those decisions because I think it needs to be a group uh, decision, not a one-person decision. I'll just have to share this with you. I, um, I know that in a lot of legal departments are seen as the department of no. Mm-hmm. That is, they get the final say on a lot of things. I like to think that uh, you know, my legal department has moved on to be the department of slow. So we just take, some, <laughs> we just take time to make oh, sure everything's, I heard that. Everything's, everything's, you know, everything's working out properly and we've considered all the options before we go back. So, so we don't tend to get the department of no. We, just, we tend to get the department of slow for the time being. But legal tech might help that, speed things up. So. Right. And someone does need to at least ask the hard questions before someone signs on the dotted line for for a million dollar contract. So I I think that's a good way to characterize it. And that's I like that. I like that comment. Um, You know, it's a unique opportunity to talk to folks that are practicing law in a different country. I'd be interested if you had any tidbits to share with our listeners, particularly about maybe what you've seen. I know you've had an opportunity, you, you talk to lawyers practicing elsewhere. What might be different about the, the role of either in-house counsel or lawyers in general in Australia compared to most of our listeners are here in the United States? You know, I, I think we should, there's always good learning opportunities and yeah. I'd, love, I'd love tips or nuggets that you could share from an Australia perspective. Yeah, and, and look, I've practiced in the US as well. Okay. And you know, you know, one of the observations is just the size of the U.S. market. You know, it is just so big compared to the Australian market in terms of the number of providers, the, the, the scale on which litigation occurs, the um, just the volume of, of, of deals, of litigation. And that, you know, that changes the dynamic. That leads to greater specialisation. Um, it leads to a greater awareness of the risks of litigation because there is just so much of it. Uh, so, you know, scale is is one thing 
Um, from, from an in-house perspective, one observation I'll make, there, there's a funny dynamic of, you know, if there's a lawyer in the room, we have to bring our lawyer too. Mm-hmm. In America, there's, you know, if you bring your wizard, we need to bring our wizard. And, and I, I don't find that <laughs> dynamic so much in Australia. You know, I, I find that a business person is happy to talk to a lawyer mm. about an issue without saying, oh, hold on, if, if you guys got a lawyer on the phone, we need to get a lawyer on the phone. Whereas I find that dynamic does play out a bit in the US. And I'm not sure what drives that, uh, but, you know, it's, it's a difference I've noted. I'm, I'm with Adrian. I have a very similar experience. Um, but I have to say that, you know, obviously through the ACC and, and that network, um, I've had an opportunity to meet a lot of other general counsel. And uh, what I find that fundamentally we all grapple with the same issues. The same issues keep us up at night. So, you know, data security, doing more with less resources. Um, that, that, they're common problems, um, albeit in different languages, because we, we speak Australian um, and you speak English. So, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, but I, right. I find that fascinatingly enough, uh, cultural differences, but legal issues finally the same. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate both of you joining us today. I know you've got a limited time, but this has been very educational, and I, and I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Adrian. Mike, thank you. For thank, you. thank you. Thank you.